Good morning, church. Oh, yeah, it is good to be with you. It's good to be back in CLC. We got a lot of changes happening. Not this Sunday, but next Sunday, we're going to have guests in here. Some of the folks from the traditional service may go to the 830 traditional service, which will be in here. Some may come in here to our contemporary service, and I want you to make them feel at home, okay? I want you to do that as best you can, as best you can. But I'm excited about what God has for us, and, and I am absolutely convinced God loves this church. He loves his church. He loves the bride that he adorns, the church, the body of Christ. And so we are that body. How many of you have watched the reality series Hoarders on A&E? I mean, there's some pretty gross stuff on that, on that show, and, and, and it depicts the viewer gets a window into the lives of those, and there's been a classification for this, uh, uh, a psychological diagnosis that, that individuals have this obsession of collecting things, some of them useful, but too many, some it's pointless to keep, and the huge volume that is collected in their living space can create harm for them, for others. It can be unsanitary, and, and so Hoarders is a series maybe you've seen. I, I'd like to submit a script for a condition my wife has called Trashers. <laughs> She's a purger when it comes to the things in the house. There are endorphins that go off in her when she works on a closet and begins to throw things away. And I've had to, in the years that we've been married, encourage her to use some restraint, baby. I mean, come on. I mean, not too long ago, she was going through some things. And it doesn't just matter. It doesn't happen just when we move. It could happen after we've lived in a house for a while. And, and like I said, it's an unhealthy obsession. I mean, she had a, a, a number of papers, and she said, I don't know why we allow these papers just to take up space. They seem useless. And at the top of the pile was my birth certificate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have used that in the past to show identification. I might need it in the future. And so she's got this condition. And she was going through a closet recently. And she said, I've hung on to these. And I thought, wow. She really got outside of herself. It was a collection of my love letters that I had written her while we were dating and while we were engaged and in the first part of our marriage. And, and she said, I think I'm going to keep some of these. I thought you might want to read them. And I, I need to share with you, I began to read some of those. I was good. <laughs> 
I mean, what you might have thought was cheesy, I call poetic. And I was trying to make my case. And I said, baby, hang on to these. Because I think I'm still making my case. And, and I, said, uh, I said, these are letters that are, articulate my affections for you. And you see, I, I was making a case that I loved her. And I was using words. And I was making a case, and I made a pretty good case, that these were words that I wanted to communicate. I want you to live the rest of your life with me. I want us to partner together. She wrote words as well. We both have written love letters, and we've held on to those. But those were words. And words can be cheap. And we spent 30 years using those words and allowing those words to manifest themselves into a portrait to where I think we've gotten a little better. She's better than I am at helping each other see what love looks like, not just what love sounds like. We're in the midst of this series entitled True Love. And last week, Anthony did an awesome job communicating how true love lavishes. How true love is extravagant. And there are those moments where it's okay. If our motives are pure, we can be lavish. We can be extravagant. I think of that story out of the New Testament where where Jesus was at the home of Simon Peter. and, And Simon Peter was there with the rest of the followers of Christ, the disciples. And a woman comes in. And she's carrying heavy burdens. But one of the things she carries is this alabaster jar. And it's a beautiful jar. And it's full of expensive ointment, perfume. And she pours it over the head of Jesus into his long hair. She lavished love on him. And and the other disciples begrudged her for that. And one of them said, you know, we could have used this on the poor. I mean, we could have taken this to the market and we could have sold it and given to those who had a greater need. And Jesus understood the timing and he understood the setting and he understood what she wanted to express. And he said, you know, the poor will always be with us. He spoke to the poor. He loved the poor. He stayed with the poor more than any other person that he would spend time with, he knew that, but he said, they will be with you. I will not be with you forever. What this woman has done is something great. And so true love lavishes. It's extravagant. It's expansive. It's relentless. And one of the things from 1 John, and I want us to read 1 John in just a minute, a, a passage 
uh, the second chapter. But one of the things that he has is a purpose statement. You know how you write a thesis paper? You know, in college or high school, you have to have a purpose statement. He had a purpose statement, and I really believe it's captured in verse 4 of chapter 1 of 1 John, and it's this. It is my prayer that your joy may be full, complete. And so we're going to read that passage that's designated for today. But I want you to understand in the background there is a purpose statement that he is saying, listen, believers, you're having to live in a world that's difficult to live in, and I want your joy to be as full as it can be. I want you to experience the love and the presence of God in the fullness of his desire for your life. And so I want us to look at this text out of the second chapter as we're journeying through this epistle. And so we're going to put it up there. 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Whoever does the will of God lives for eternity. And so he, he helps us to understand some things, and, and he speaks throughout this letter about the categories of love. And I know we touched on this last week, but one of the words is eros which has to do with romantic love. And then there is phileo, which has to do with friendships. And there's another called agape that God captures for us in his sacrifice. But in our culture, the number one that carries the day, that wins the day, is eros, that which is based on feeling. And you know what's, what's interesting to me is that God gives us gifts, and they're beautiful gifts. And I believe that it is a beautiful gift, that eros part of us, that emotion, our sexuality, and God blesses that, and he says it's a wonderful thing. But what happens is we begin to pervert it, we begin to shift it from its original intent, from something beautiful to something that can cause real damage for those that are involved. And it becomes distorted from what God intended. And so he's saying, be careful. The world bases its definition. It wants you to think that authentic love is simp simply captured in feelings. That's what love looks like. But it's more than that. It's commitment. And maybe I've shared this with you before. Delia and I have been in, in 30 years of marriage. And, and that romantic feeling is still alive. 
Praise God. It's still alive. But the feelings have come and gone. And there have been seasons where Delia has not felt that love for me. Because maybe I have really screwed up. And so the world wants to say that it's all based on emotion and feelings. But but the wonderful thing for us as followers of God is we have a much broader understanding of love that is much bigger than that. Agape means that it's unconditional. That's hard for us. And so what happens is we, we become products of the world. There's a concept called the Stockholm Syndrome. And criminal justice folks have studied this. It came out of uh, an incident in 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden, where some thieves, some bank robbers, had gone into this huge bank and they had taken hostages. They, the, the law enforcement had moved in. They, wouldn't, they couldn't escape. And so they decided, we'll take hostages. We still see it today. And they held them for days and days. And a phenomenon took place that they now have labeled the Stockholm Syndrome. And that is when our defense mechanisms, when some things within our psychological structure begins to shift and in a strange and sick kind of way we develop an affinity to those who want to do us harm and so right after right after that event they surrendered and it was time to prosecute and and some of the individuals would not testify against them the very ones who would fire off their, their weaponry, who threatened their lives, who had harm as an agenda, had become the object of the victim's affections. And I think what, what John is saying is be careful because in this world it is easy for you to give your affections towards that which will create havoc for you and harm. And so don't love this world. Enjoy the things of this world. Be in this world. But don't be the world. And don't buy into its values. Because it's a counterfeited love. Our message series really has at the heart of it the, the amazing and crazy love of God. And if we could capture that in some small way, if we could grasp that, it would help us to pull away from those things of the world. Because we, one of the things in the message talks about, uh, a translation, the message says, that if you love the world, it squeezes God out. Well, I believe the inverse is true. When God becomes magnified, the world becomes smaller, and we become 
safer in the decisions we make. And so what is love? What does love look like? It's more than just words, but I want you to hear these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Maybe some of you had them read at your own wedding. Love is patient. You know, our associate pastor, uh, John Horton, he was talking about some things that he'll be sharing with you next week, and he was talking about how God is continuing to eradicate and remove sin in his life, and that it's a continual process, and he battles uh, with his own humanity, just like we all do. And he said, and one of the things that I'm working on, Anthony, you'll love it. He said, I struggle with being impatient. I love it. And he said at staff meetings, we'll beat a dead horse to death. And, uh, <laughs> and he says, I struggle with that. Love is patient. Not to bring somebody else's sin into this room. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. Love never fails. And so to the world, this is counterintuitive. But to us, we are called to this way of life. So love is more than just words. And we hear in this letter, God is love. But if those are words, how has that been manifested? How is that? How does that? become clearer to us. Well, you have your message notes. I just want to encourage you to write down some words. They all begin with the letter P. And, and, and I want to share with you what I believe is kind of salvation history and God's desire to want to shower upon us as we move his love, as we move towards communion. And the first is, I believe the Lord loved the capstone of creation. He loved all of creation after each thing, he said, it's good. After humankind, after you were made, I was made, he said, it is very good. It is very good. And so he provided, through his great love, paradise. Paradise, that's my first word. And all things in the world were right. But because of our humanity and our brokenness that was a part of that, and our missing the mark, and our mess-ups, and our selfishness, and our lust. The Bible, and theologically we describe it as the fall, where our imperfections became evident, and all of creation was affected. And so he loved us so much that he gave us paradise. And we messed that up. And then through a nation of Israel and a covenant, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we, we find principles and prohibitions, good laws and guidelines and, and, and a way of life that, that promotes wellness and health spiritually and, and physically and emotionally. And, and there is a, a peaceable worldview in that. 
And we breached those laws, and we came up short, and we ignored those laws. And so, principles, prohibitions. And then he sent spokespersons, prophets, men and women, who called out of the wilderness, if you would, and said, turn toward me. My love is great. And I want to lavish my love upon you. I want you to see true love. And so here are those that can point you that way. Some were persecuted. Some were put to death. Some became disillusioned and stepped away from their role. Prophets. And I bet God in his creative and sanctified imagination said, you know, I have done so much. I created paradise. I gave them principles to live by. I gave them prophets to hear that I love them. But all of that pointed to a need, a greater need that we would need in our own lives. A provider of pardon provider of promise, a provider of possibility, and that would be embodied in Jesus Christ. And you see, we can look at the scripture, and those are words, and we can hear words spoken, and maybe we hear what love can be like but in communion in the very body and blood of Jesus Christ we see what love looks like we see what love acts like we see a love that is so expansive that he died for good people, he died for bad people, and he can provide all that we need. God is love. And it's the cross that helps me to picture that. 